This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm really delighted to be here and kind of kick things off by talking about the evolution of human walking and human running. And uh, so let's get going. So uh, it's important to recognize that, um, you know, all animals engage in physical activity, which we define as any bodily movement produced by skeletal muscles that expends energy. But only humans exercise, which I define as discretionary physical activity, which we undertake to sustain or improve health and fitness. And of all the major kinds of exercise that we do, and on the major kinds of physical activity that we do, nothing is more common than walking and running. But as to understand that, we really need to step back a little bit. It's important if we think about both physical activity and exercise, which, which of course is a kind of physical activity, it's important to back up and think about that in the context of what animals do all day long, and that involves also physical inactivity. And humans, it must be understood, evolve from relatively inactive creatures. And a, and a simple way of thinking about that is something called the physical activity level, or the PAL. The PAL is just the ratio of the total energy expended in a day, your total energy expenditure, divided by your basal metabolic rate. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot more about this from, from Herman Ponzer. But most animals have PALs of about two to three. In other words, they're about two to three times more active than they are sort of just kind of spent the energy they spend sort of sitting around. But, but apes are basically couch potatoes. Um, so orangs, gorillas, chimpanzees, they have PALs of about 1.4 or 1.5. Um, that's a huge reduction um, compared to, to most animals. And, um, and like one way of thinking about that is just even your average sedentary American uh, spends way more energy just per, per calorie per kilo than, than wild chimpanzees on being active. I'm sorry to make fun of Prof uh, Senator Sanders. He's actually one of my favorite people. But anyway, so selection for, for the, but what happened in human evolution was that there was selection for increased physical activity. So remember, pals of, of apes are about 1.4 or 1.5. Pals for hunter-gatherers are around two. And so that represents a really substantial increase. And that's because hunter-gatherers in, engage in, in digging and carrying and throwing and dancing and climbing and fighting and all kinds of stuff. But especially they engage in walking and running. So if you look at the average amount of walking uh, distance per day that, uh, that chimpanzees do, it's about two to four kilometers in most, in most groups in most, most times. Whereas your average female hunter-gatherer in the, in the tropics walks about eight to nine kilometers a day. And the average male hunter-gatherer walks about 12 to 15 kilometers a day. Another way of putting that is that your average female hunter-gatherer walks from L.A. to D.C. every day, uh, every year, excuse me, uh, throughout her life. So walking and running are really the most fundamental forms of both moderate and vigorous physical activity that we humans have been undertaking for millions of years. And as, just to understand that, we, we often define moderate and vigorous physical activity based on what's called your MET, your metabolic rate, which is just the ratio of how much energy you're spending to how much energy you'd be spending at rest. So moderate physical activities are usually about three to six times more, more sort of energetically costly than resting. So, so a brisk walk, for example, would be moderate physical activity. And vigorous, vigorous physical activities are greater than six mets, or six times the energy you spend in walking. And of course, running is, is, of course, the most fundamental form of vigorous physical activity. So, so with that kind of brief introduction, let's think about the, 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 the evolution of human walking and running and why they still matter. So... It's not uh, an insight, everybody here probably already knows, that, that bipedalism is, of course, one of the major things that happened in human evolution. And in fact, it was bipedal walking, not big brains, that really led the way in human evolution, that got us started on a separate evolutionary path um, than, than our ape ancestors. So we evolved from, 
from a from a last common ancestor with chimpanzees, and both chimpanzees and gorillas are knuckle walkers. So by the principle of parsimony, it looks it you know it's reasonable to hypothesize that the last common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees was probably a knuckle walker, although that's still debated. And at some point, probably very soon after that 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 um, that that last common ancestor, we became bipeds. And we have a lot of evidence for that, actually, um, despite a very poor fossil record. So this is, uh, this is the skull of Sahelanthropus, also sometimes known as Tumai. It's about 7 million years old from Chad. And although there's a, like a really bad femur from this, from this, uh, from this guy, we, we do have the full skull. And this skull was unquestionably that of a biped because its foramen magnum pointed downwards. And of course, animals uh, look where they're going when they're walking, and so a downwardly pointed frame and magnum is telltale evidence of some kind of bipedal gait. We also have a femur from a from a from a species called a roran from Kenya from around six million years ago, and of course there's the the famous RD skeleton, which has a reasonably complete pelvis, and that pelvis is unquestionably the pelvis of a biped. So so we know that early on in human evolution, walking uh, was uh, bipedal walking uh, led the way, and there are of course lots of debates about why early hominins started walking. But I think the very best explanations have to do with climate change. And we know this is a graph of tree cover density over, over both West and East Africa over the time period when, when early hominins evolved. And we know that between about seven and six million years ago, there was a, a brief phase of, of intense aridity uh, that, that swept across Africa. And of course, that would have had been very important for a kind of ape uh, ancestor of ours because apes live in forests. They, they subsist on, on fruits. And as, 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 as aridity increased, the distance that, they would, that apes would have had to travel in order to get to patches of food would have increased. And it turns out that knuckle walking is really very expensive. And, and bipedalism is about, about twice as efficient per kilo, per, per unit distance, um, as knuckle walking. So a, a chimpanzee uh, walking uh, four kilometers a day uh, spends about 100 kilos, whereas uh, a, a bipedal hominid waking the same amount would 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 um, would 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 spend about a hundred calories to walk about eight kilometers. So so that would have been a, a substantial energetic savings um, by becoming bipedal. And bipedalism, of course, is a is a, seems like a reasonably complicated uh, a, a gait, and it's not something that most animals do. But we know that there are a number of key adaptations that underlie our ability to be good bipedal walkers. I already mentioned that the downward-oriented foramen magnum, but there's some other key ones as well. For example, a long curved lumbar spine, uh, hips, the, the ilia of the hips that face to the side, a wide sacrum, an enlarged femoral head, reinforced knees, and a transverse arch, so an arch that goes from side to side of the foot uh, that helps uh, stiffen the foot when we, when we push off during locomotion. But that, so we know that these early hominins were, were bipedal, but there's still a lot of debates about just what what early hominin walking was like. And there's a, been a substantial debate about whether or not they were sort of bent, hip, bent, knee, walking a bit like Groucho Marx, or whether they walked like your typical human today with an extended posture. And a common way we do that is to, is to do what's called functional morphology. So we'll look at a, at a region of the, of, the, of the skeleton, like a foot, for example, and we'll ask, is that foot more chimp-like or is it more human-like? And if it's more chimp-like, we'll often assume that that means it probably had an inefficient bent hip, bent knee gait. And if it's more human-like, we'll make the inference that it had an efficient extended hip and knee gait, like a, like a typical modern human. I actually think that's a very poor way of doing science because it's just correlational. It's not, it's not really testing mechanisms. And a better approach is to, is to test the effects of variations in anatomy on performance. And I don't have time to go through 
through too many examples, but let's, let's give you one example here, which is, for example, long toes. So it's often argued that the long toes of Australopiths and, and perhaps Artipithecus as well would have compromised its ability to walk, but that's actually a testable hypothesis. Um, the reason is that you know, long toes uh, create a moment, a torque, a rotational moment around the joint between the metatarsals and the phalanges. That's the product of the force of the ground times the, the moment arm of that force. And that has to be countered by, by the flexor force that's produced by the muscles times its very, very tiny moment arm because the muscles run right close to the joint. So Campbell Rowland, uh, who was in my lab, did a wonderful experiment where he looked at people with longer and shorter toes and, 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 and measured just what that flexor force was to stabilize the joint for people who had longer versus shorter toes and then extended that graft up to what an Australopith would be like. And basically what Campbell found was that, um, that in terms of walking, having Australopith-like toes would not have been a problem, but in terms of running, it would have been a serious problem because the amount of force that these, that these digital flexors would have to produce was much greater than even the flexors that, the, that, 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 that flex the big, the big toe. And so that seems uh, almost completely improbable. And so what we think is that the long toe of Australopithecus afarensis wouldn't have really affected its walking performance, but it certainly would have affected its running performance. Another example is the longitudinal arch. It's well known that humans have arches and that other animals don't have arches, like chimpanzees, and it's often been argued that the longitudinal arch is a key adaptation for walking. And we should be a little bit suspicious about that because, of course, there are a lot of human beings around today. Probably about a third of the people uh, watching this conference uh, don't actually have a full arch in their foot, and they can walk around. And it turns out that uh, chimpanzees also walk, and they create stiffness, but not through their arch, but they create stiffness by using muscles, because muscles can stiffen the midfoot. And Nikolauka, also a former member of the lab, did this, uh, did this kind of research, and we did some further experiments. But uh, yes, it's true that the longitudinal arch makes the, the arch of the foot, uh, the midfoot, much stiffer in humans than chimpanzees, about four times more stiff. But the muscles of chimpanzees can still stiffen their feet about eight times more than, say, macaques can do it. So, so you don't actually need a longitudinal arch to stiffen the midfoot for, for propulsion. And so I don't think we should say the absence of a longitudinal arch in early Australopithecines meant that they couldn't walk like you or I. So a better way of doing it is to just basically t tally up all these different adaptations, the lardosis, the ilia, the angle, etc., and look at the earliest hominins and look in Australopiths and ask what's their effect on walking performance. And I think when we look at the earliest hominins, the answer is a lot of question marks. I think there's some evidence. They certainly had a lateral-facing ilia. They certainly had a transverse arch. We have questions about a lot of other bits of anatomy, and there are other bits that they're just missing. But Australopiths certainly have quite a few features, I think, that would have made them effective uh, at walking. And I think we can't discount the fact that their, their walking abilities would have been uh, equal to that of humans. And, and in fact, the smoking gun evidence really comes from those famous Laetoli footprints and a very neat analysis that Dave Reichland did, and he's, he's also speaking at this conference, where they looked at the effect of different kinds of walking gaits on, on, on the footprints that people leave. And when you walk with an extended hip and knee, you basically, the, the, the heel print and the toe print are about of equal depth, but when you walk with a bent hip, bent knee, you leave a much deeper toe print. And if you look at the Laetoli prints, they look very much like a modern human with extended hip and knee. And I think that's good evidence, you know, very convincing evidence that, uh, that, these, uh, that these hominins, presumably Australopithecus, uh, walked with an extended gait like you and me. And that's great, because walking is cool. It frees up our hands. There's all kinds of wonderful things about walking that we think is really amazing and important and helps create all kinds of opportunities in human evolution. But let's also remember that walking has some drawbacks, right? When you walk on two feet, you're less stable. You're more likely to fall over. It's a real problem if you're a pregnant mother, because you now you have this enormous weight in front of you that makes you want to tip over all the time. It puts a lot of stress on your back, and, and walking may lead to increases in back pain. 
And of course, another really big problem with walking, which we don't talk about very often, is that it makes us slow. If you have only two legs, you can produce force, you know, and generate power with only two legs as opposed to four legs. And that makes us, by definition, about half the speed of, of similar size quadrupeds. And, and so somebody like Usain Bolt, who's the world's fastest sprinter, he can run about 37 kilometers per hour. And that's way less fast than, you know, a typical lion that can run about 80 kilometers per hour. And of course, very few of us can run as fast as Usain Bolt. Most, you know, fit reasonably good, uh, fit human beings can run only about 24 kilometers per hour. So we would have been, you know, easy pickings uh, for, for carnivores uh, back in the day as a result of our being bipedal. So that would have been a very, very serious problem. And so a reasonable hypothesis is that because we were slow bipedal walkers, uh, there was, uh, we had to find other ways to avoid uh, being eaten by predators. And one hypothesis that uh, I put forward, and you'll hear more about it from Diana Kambarov, is that although we think about hair loss and, and the increase in sweat glands as being crucial for running, maybe it was actually really important for walking because hominids foraging out in the midday sun uh, uh, would have had an advantage because they could, they could lose heat, um, uh, dump heat uh, more effectively than carnivores uh, who, would, who could have chased them. So maybe, maybe the ability to, to forage in the middle of the day when it's really hot by, by sweating and having not so much fur was, it, was a really important uh, advantage for being bipedal. Uh, time will tell as we test just when we lost our hair and when we increased our sweat glands. Okay, that's it for walking. Now let's, um, let's, let's switch now to the other gate, which is running. And, you know, for many years, in fact, when I was a student, we pretty much discounted running as being an important gate in human evolution. In fact, I remember my, my professor, Dick Taylor, here, shown here with Aria, telling me that I was, and I read Dave Carrier's paper back in the day, and I remember him telling me it was silly paper because, because humans are as inefficient as penguins, and we're awkward. And as we've already learned, you know, even the fastest human beings are slow compared to most animals. And so, um, you know, a typical human being can run a little bit faster than a skunk, but would be, you know, in a close heat with a hippo or a rhino, and that's not, not very impressive, right? But there were, but things changed, started to change because of, first of all, two pioneer papers published in 1984, one by Dave Carrier, who, who you're going to hear from a little later on, but also another one by Walter Bortz from Stanford Medical School, um, uh, making the claim that, that running was really important in human evolution. And, and Dennis Bramble and I sort of picked up on this and expanded the argument in our paper in 2004 in Nature, where we argued that, that endurance running played a really important in the role in the evolution of the genus Homo. And to understand the importance of running, it's, you need to understand that running is not just fast walking. So when you walk, you're using your legs basically like a stilt, like a, like, like a pendulum. And during the first half of stance, you raise your body center of mass that stores up, up kinetic energy, uh, potential energy, excuse me. And then during the second half of stance, your center of mass falls, and you get that kinetic energy back, that potential energy back for free, as, as, as potential energy back for free as, as kinetic energy. So you're kind of storing and releasing kinetic and potential energy. But running, you use your legs like a spring. It's like a pogo stick, right? And running, when you hit the ground, instead of your center of body, center of mass going up, it actually goes down. And you flex your hips and your knees and your ankles and you're stretching elastic elements in your legs, those tendons, and they store up energy like a spring and then they help push your body back up into the air for the aerial phase that occurs in a run that doesn't occur in a walk. So running is biomechanically really profoundly different uh, from walking. And humans are really good at running because running is basically jumping from one leg to another and we are amazing jumpers. So here's a, to, to prove that to you, here's a graph of speed against uh, speed for, uh, for different species. So humans, dogs, ponies, and horses. 
And it's important to recognize that trotting is the endurance gate for, for, for quadrupeds. And human beings, even sort of, this is the human endurance running range, and even, you know, average middle-aged professors like me can run above the trot gallop transition speed of a, of a, of a, of a full-sized dog my size, and as well as a pony. And good human runners can run above the trot gallop uh, transition speed of horses. And that's not discounting, that's not even taking into consideration the thermoregulatory abilities of humans. That's just the speed at which humans can run long distances like marathons. Humans are also capable of running extraordinarily long distances. So like you know, millions of people every year run marathons. Um, and, yet, um, and yet most animals, including the social carnivores like hyenas and, and horses like, horse, animals like horses, which have been bred for running, they can't and don't run for very long uh, distances. They run about you know, 15 to 20 kilometers. And of course, we're apes, right? And other apes barely run at all. So chimpanzees will run maybe about 100 meters. That's pretty much uh, the, the, the maximum. And finally, in terms of economy, humans are fantastic. This is a graph of, of body mass against the cost of running. Um, and you can see as bigger animals are more efficient, but humans run, land right, right, pretty much right along the lines. And we're about as efficient as, as horses and as, as, as ostriches and, and various antelopes. We're, we're really very efficient runners, at, uh, as, uh, not, not what, um, what, what I was told by my professor back in the day. And, and, to put, and to prove it, I actually, a few years ago, uh, ran one of those races where you can r- run against horses, uh, run, a, run a marathon against horses. And even though I'm a kind of an average uh, uh, runner, an average m- marathoner, I actually beat um, uh, most of the horses in that race. So that was kind of cool. So I was able to put my money uh, where my mouth is. And the reason I was able to do that, and the reason that you know, average everyday humans can 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 have these extraordinary running abilities, is that there's a, an enormous number of adaptations that have been identified that ena- that enable humans to be really good runners, and I, and and that's evidence for considerable selection. And so there's a wide range of these. A lot of these, of course, are musculoskeletal, but there's also cardiovascular and respiratory uh, uh, mechanisms. There are digestive ones and thermoregulatory ones and metabolic ones as well. And you'll hear more about the metabolic um, 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 uh, adaptations from Ellen, and you'll hear more about the thermoregulatory adaptations uh, from, from Yana Kambarov. But let me just very briefly uh, touch on, on some, some of these other adaptations. So, so my lab has spent a lot of time studying musculoskeletal adaptations for running, and I don't have time to, to go through most of them, and you probably not want to listen to, the, to such a long lecture anyway. But as I already mentioned, short toes, for example, that's one of them. An enlarged gluteus maximus is also known. You're all probably all sitting on it, but humans have an enlarged gluteus maximus, and it turns out this muscle plays very little role in walking, but it's really important for stabilizing the trunk in running, and we can show that humans, in fact, in, once with the genus Homo, there's been an extraordinary increase in the size of this muscle, especially the cranial portion, which is a, which is a trunk stabilizer. Humans also have the, an IT band, a source of a lot of injury, but the IT band is convergently involved with animals like goats and and sheep and and uh, and Carolyn Angwin, my lab, showed that IT bands are also an important adaptation because they they're an elastic storage device that stores up energy during stance and helps passively uh, swing the leg uh, during the swing phase um, and saving actually a considerable amount of energy. Uh, we also have all the remember running is is basically jumping from one leg to the other and we have all these tendons that are really important storage organs for elastic energy. So chimpas and gorillas, for example, have tiny little tendons. That's the length of a of the Achilles tendon in a gorilla, but in humans, it's more than half the length of the shank, and we have all these other tendons in the IT band. Again, these are important elastic energy storage devices, and we also have, have elastic energy storage devices in our feet. So some people think about the longitudinal arch as being a key adaptation for walking, but I actually think it's really more an adaptation for running. Again, you can walk without a longitudinal arch, but it's really hard to run without one, and that, and that, that plantar fascia and those tendons in the, in the, in the foot 
turns out, save a fair amount of energy um, that we recover with each step. And then finally, just want to mention the nuchal ligament, because we just published a paper, Andrew Yagin in my lab is the first author, where we showed that the arm acts as a counterbalance to the head via this fantastic little elastic organ, this elastic tendon in the back of the, of the, of the neck called the, the nuchal ligament, which helps, help, helps link the, the mass of the arm with the mass of the head, thereby providing a passive form of stabilization of the head for when we're running. But, but there's a lot more adaptations than just, than just musculoskeletal. Let me just mention some key cardiovascular adaptations because, of course, when you run, you need to, you need to do any, or any other kind of sustained physical activity. You need a high cardiac output. You know, it's the, the amount of uh, uh, blood that you can uh, circulate throughout your body. And, and, and humans do that in part because we have very different hearts from chimpanzees. We have uh, ventricles. That's the main pumping chamber of the heart. The left ventricle, which pumps blood throughout the body, in humans is larger and it's thinner and it's less trabeculated. And importantly, it can also has the ability to to twist and untwist like a spring during running. So this is a graph with done with a collaboration with my my colleagues and friends Aaron Bagish and Rob Shave. But this is a chimpanzee in red, and these are different kinds of humans. This is a runner, and this is a football player in blue and green. But during systole, which is the pumping phase, the human heart twists. And then during diastole, which is the which is the which is the filling phase, uh, it then untwists. Whereas uh, the chimpanzee, basically, the heart is unable to twist and untwist, uh, and thereby uh, loses that elastic uh, capability. And so, so humans, uh, like human runners, can have way larger cardiac outputs uh, when standardized, so the liters per minute standardized by body mass, um, than uh, chimpanzees and gorillas, and even humans that don't have really big. Uh, endurance-adapted hearts like football linemen still have way more ability to produce high cardiac outputs uh, per unit body mass uh, than chimpanzees and gorillas. So those are important adaptations for, 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 um, for vigorous physical activity. We also have key adaptations for, for, for respiration. So you know, if you're going to get on all that, um, all that high cardiac output, that's basically to, to pump oxygen around your body, right? And so you need to also breathe in a lot more oxygen. And humans um, have ability to expand our thoraxes more than, than most other animals to enable us to, to, to have the really high uh, tidal volumes or the really high ventilatory volumes that, um, that enable us to suck in a lot of oxygen and then use it around our bodies. So, um, and that partly comes from, um, from the ability to have not just a big thorax, but also a very mobile thorax. So if you look at this is a this is a this is this is basically breathing here on the on the x-axis against the 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 medial lateral expansion of the thorax on the y-axis here in this lower graph and this is the dorsoventral or or front to back expansion of the thorax on the y-axis we call this the bucket handle movement we call this the pump handle movement as you can see uh, dogs are capable of a little bit of a pump handle movement um, uh, like humans goats are not capable of it but dogs are incapable because they're quadrupeds they're their, 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 their limbs are constraining the medial lateral movement of the thorax, just like in goats, but humans have this amazing ability to also increase medial lateral movement, and the end result is that we have really high ability to breathe in a huge amount of oxygen, and, that, and those rib movements are made possible by, by, by joints between the ribs and the, and the vertebra, which are much more concavo-convex in the genus Homo than they are in chimpanzees as well in Australopiths. So, so that ability to have all that movement um, evolved in the genus Homo. And that work, by the way, I should mention, was done by Eamon Callison in my lab. Really cool stuff. Okay, so, uh, so why is all this uh, going on? Well, the answer is 
um, is is for is to get meat, right? And so we think the importance for running uh, is both for scavenging as well as persistence hunting. So for scavenging, like you see all those animals, you see a bunch of vultures in the distance, you know there's some meat there, and you want to get there before the hyenas. Well, you have an advantage in the middle of the day; you can get there before the hyenas do and and have access to the meat before the hyenas have have, have devoured whatever the lions have left over. Another important, uh, another important um, uh, 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 behavior is what we call persistence hunting, which you can see from this video. So what happens is that hunters in the middle of the day will pick an animal, a big animal, and they'll chase it, they'll track it, and they'll chase it, and they'll track it. It's a combination of walking and running. And eventually that animal, as you can see, this is a kudu, this is a, a san hunter, uh, that kudu uh, will, uh, will, will collapse from, from, from heat stroke. And running is important for a wide range of other kinds of hunting behaviors, like chasing animals over cliffs or chasing them into into traps, or even in uh, in, in 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 the snow. Uh, we have evidence of of Native Americans who are hunting caribou, for example, and um, and, and in the snow. And the snow re- apparently really tires those caribou out. And so, if you have skis or some other ability to run on snow, uh, you have the ability to 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 do persistence hunting even in cold environments. And wherever we look in the ethnographic record, we find uh, evidence for this kind of hunting. And it always involves running. And I also want to dispel the, the myth that running is just for men. When we look in the ethnographic record, we, wherever we look, if you start looking, you find evidence that women also do it too. So for example, in the, in the, among the San, uh, Nisa, for example, uh, in, her, in her, her, her autobiography, as, as told to Marjorie Shostak, she describes actually several events in the book where she ran down animals or ran to, to scavenge. So, and, and, and there's also evidence, for example, from the Agta uh, hunter-gatherers in the Philippines, where, where men tend to use like lots of big weapons, but women, women often run down deer or, or, or pigs uh, in, in, among the Agta. Um, and so it's uh, this is and it's true also in, in Australia and elsewhere. So let's not let's not um, let's not uh, think that running is only for men. Women are just as good at running as men. And finally, you know, an evolutionary approach helps us understand how and why we evolved to walk and run. But it's also re- important to remember that walking and running still matter, right? Uh, because we live in a world in which we've now created all these machines that do all our work for us, and and we now walk less. And, and uh, one way of measuring that is looking at steps per day. So typical Americans take about 4,700 steps per day. And that's based on really large samples of, of people from people's cell phones and stuff like that, or from pedometers. But, but for example, hunter-gatherers like the Hadza take about 16,000 steps a day. The Taramar we've measured take about 19,000 steps a day. So there's been an incredible decrease in just average daily number of steps per day. Um, and, and that, of course, has negative effects. This is a very important graph. This is the uh, this is a, a data set from well over a million Americans that, sh- that that plots minutes per week of moderate to vigorous physical activity, so like walking or running, for example, against the age-adjusted relative risk of death. And you can see that just a, an hour a, hour a, a week of, of, of moderate to vigorous physical activity can lower your, your, your age-adjusted risk of death by about 40%. And if you get down to the World, Rec- World Health Organization recommended minimum, which is 150 minutes a week, you actually get a 50% reduction in your relative risk of death. And if you go all the way to the pre-industrial levels that we see, say, among the Hadza or the Taramara, you get down to almost a 70% reduction in your relative risk of death. So we are suffering really quite seriously from the fact that about only about 20% of Americans actually meet that World Health Organization recommended minimum of 150 minutes a week. Another thing that's different, of course, is that we also walk and run weirdly. Like back in the day when we walked, we we were either barefoot or we wore very minimal shoes. And now we wear all these fancy schmancy shoes that are comfortable or sexy or whatever, and they have all kinds of cushioning. 
back in the day, we used to, you know, people used to uh, carry stuff when they walked. They'd carry water, they'd carry firewood, they'd carry food, they'd carry their babies. And now we carry almost nothing, maybe sometimes a little bit of a backpack, and that's about it. So walking has changed in, in all kinds of fundamental ways. And running has also changed, right? Uh, people used to run barefoot or in minimal shoes, but now the majority of people in Western countries like the United States wear and run in these very cushioned shoes. And of course, that changes our how we run our kinematics. So, so people who wear cushioned shoes are very often land really hard on their heels and they overstride, whereas people who are barefoot are forced to run what I call a barefoot style, which involves uh, less overstriding and more of a flat foot when they land, more, more often a forefoot strike. People like uh, in the, who ran in the past, uh, you know, hunter-gatherers, they didn't run every day. They weren't training for marathons. They didn't run very fast. You know, they tend to run like 10-minute miles, and they would run only occasionally. And they were doing like, doing like you know, huge distances every week. Whereas people like me who are training for marathons are, are running five or six days a week, and we're doing you know, 50, 60 miles a week, and we're often doing it really fast. And, and whereas people used to run on, on trails, today, of course, a lot of us run on streets. And so all of that leads to much higher rates of injury. And so fundamentally, walking and running are, are, are the most, well, fundamental physical activities that we evolved to do. And, and it's important to remember that it's a mismatch when we don't do them, right? Where our bodies are not well adapted for, for a lack of, of, of regular physical activity, and that most basically includes walking and running. And there are many, many examples. I already showed you the data for the sort of relative rate of, of curve, but since we're now confronting an epidemic of COVID, let me show you some data that just came out last week, um, which is uh, from, from California, from Bob Salas, uh, using the data from the Kaiser Permanente system. But they looked at the, everybody in the Kaiser system who, for which they've got data on, on physical activity, because that's a, it's actually a vital sign now in the Kaiser system. So they have a huge amount of data. They looked at over 48,000 adults and individuals in California who were uh, who did not get that minimum 150 minutes a week that's recommended by the World Health Organization compared to individuals who got 150 weeks or minutes or more, and this is after adjusting adjusting for age and sex and what they called race and obesity and smoking and heart disease and diabetes and 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 etc. Individuals who were inactive had 2.5 times greater uh, likelihood of dying from COVID, and they had a 1.7 times greater likelihood of ending up in the ICU. So, and, and there are a lot of reasons behind that, um, and, and, but most fundamentally it's because our bodies are adapted for physical activity, for walking and running, and we're poorly adapted uh, for, for, for maintaining our health and getting old and staying healthy uh, in their absence. Okay, so um, I'd like to thank a whole bunch of folks who've helped me with all, all, you know, been part of all this journey in terms of all the research that we've done on walking and running, and thank uh, all the folks from CARTA, and I hope everybody keeps moving. Hi, thank you very much for joining me today and for that really kind introduction. I'm very excited to tell you about some new data from my lab um, in which we've tried to uncover the genetic changes that led to humans becoming the sweatiest ape. So humans are distinct uh, from our closest primate relatives in that the major mechanism that we use to cool ourselves off is to use the heat of our own bodies to vaporize water from the skin surface. Now, over the course of human evolution, our species has acquired a number of um, changes to the composition of the skin, which make this an efficient system for thermoregulation. So it's something that you're all probably familiar with is the fact that humans don't have fur. And we don't have fur because we have miniaturized virtually all of the hair on our body to peach fuzz. This allows for higher rates of airflow over the skin and therefore higher rates of evaporation. Now, in addition 
to the miniaturization of our body hair, a second very critical adaptation that enables thermoregulation um, by sweating in humans is that we have massively increased the density of eccrine sweat glands in our skin compared to other primates. Now, eccrine sweat glands are the very organs that, in, um, that are responsible in response to a rise in body temperature or in skin temperature for driving water from the body onto the skin surface, which is what we actually vaporize to cool off. Now, if you compare the density of eccrine sweat glands in human skin to that of a chimpanzee or to a macaque, two closely related primates, uh, in virtually any region of the body, what you'll find is that on average, humans have 10 times the density of eccrine sweat glands compared to our closest primate relatives. So a number of years ago, I became very interested in trying to understand what are the mutations and the genetic changes that evolve specifically on this human branch of the evolutionary tree that are responsible for giving um, our skin such a high density of eccrine sweat glands. So when we first started thinking about this question, um, we thought about, well, how does the skin decide how many sweat glands to build during development? Now, the reason we did this is that we know that most of evolution doesn't occur by reinventing the wheel. We know that much of species diversity is, in fact, generated by taking a highly conserved developmental paradigm or program and tweaking it to generate diversity. Now, it turns out that most of what we know about how the skin decides to build sweat glands and how many sweat glands to build comes from studies not done in mice, oh, sorry, not done in humans, but rather done in mice. So in mice, um, actually, as in most mammals outside of humans and our closest primate relatives, eccrine sweat glands are not used for thermoregulation. They're actually used for traction. And they're found not throughout the body, but they're found only on the bottom side of the paws, so the so-called um, volar skin. So what you're looking at here is the skin of a mouse paw, the bottom of the mouse paw. We've peeled the skin off and we've stained it. And these little squiggly things that you see are the ducts of individual eccrine sweat glands. Okay. Now, eccrine sweat glands develop from the outer layer of the skin during gestation, um, and that layer is called the ectoderm, and they specifically develop from these thickenings of the ectoderm called placodes. Now, again, we know from studies in the mouse that the expression of a protein called engrailed one or N1 is absolutely critical for um, getting these placodes to go down a path of development to become sweat glands. So this is a cross-section of mouse paw skin, the bottom of a mouse paw skin where the sweat glands are going to form. This is now during development. This is two days after the mouse is born or P2.5. Uh, as compared to this, which is the skin of an adult mouse. What you're looking at here is this cross-section of the mouse paw skin, and everywhere that you see purple is basically cells where engrailed is being produced. Now, what we know from studies in the mouse is that the relative levels of engrailed expression at this stage of development are absolutely critical for determining how many sweat glands the mouse is going to go on and make. And we know, in fact, that the more engrailed that gets expressed in this deep layer of the ectoderm, the more sweat glands the mouse goes on to specify. In fact, this is one of the major intrinsic mechanisms, variation in engrailed one expression, uh, which mice use to generate natural variation in eccrine gland density between different mouse strains. So with this knowledge in mind, we hypothesized that perhaps one way in which humans could have evolved a higher density of eccrine sweat glands in our skin is to acquire a mutation or mutation specifically on this human branch of the tree, which resulted in a higher production of engrailed one expression at that very uh, important stage when sweat gland placodes are being specified, when the skin decides how many sweat glands it's going to build. Now, where are these mutations likely to lie? 
So one thing um, that we know is that the, the gene sequence for engrailed that actually encodes the engrailed protein um, is very highly conserved across primates. And in fact, we know that most evolutionarily relevant sequence changes are not likely to lie within a gene, but are likely to lie in regulatory DNA, the so-called enhancers that control where a gene is expressed, when a gene is expressed, and how much of a gene is expressed. Um, so we had to look for mutations within enhancers of engrailed, specifically the enhancers that control how much engrailed gets expressed in the skin at that critical stage of placode specification. Now, it turned out that the first thing we actually needed to do was figure out what these enhancers are, because nobody knew at the time that we started this what the regulatory elements in DNA are that control the level of expression of this gene. Now, so we performed a screen in order to search for these enhancers. Now, um, our screen was based on a very um, simple observation. Um, and that was that whether you are a mouse or a human, in regions of the skin where sweat glands are going to form, the pattern of engrailed expression is very similar. So this is a cross-section again through that, the bottom of the mouse paw two days after the mouse is born with the placodes are being made. But this is exactly what the pattern of engrailed looks like during human gestation when the first sweat glands start to form. And so we reason because of the similarity in engrailed expression patterns that at least a subset of the enhancers that control engrailed expression should be ancient. They should be shared between mammals, okay? Because they're shared, this pattern is shared between mice and humans. And so therefore they should be, um, they should be identical in sequence. We should be able to ident identify them purely based on sequence conservation. Um, and so with this in mind, we used a computational method to look um, for non-coding regions, so not genes essentially, of the human genome near the engrailed locus itself, um, or the engrailed gene itself, which didn't encode proteins, but showed exceptionally high sequence conservation um, across placental mammals. And we did this across the genomes of 60 placental mammals. Um, through a somewhat long process that I won't go into uh, of prioritizing, filtering um, our data set, we were able to identify in the end 23 priority engrailed one candidate enhancers, or ECEs, each of them about a thousand base pairs long of DNA. Okay? Now, these are computationally identified. We have no idea whether or not these sequence elements actually have the ability to regulate gene expression. So we had to test this. And specifically, we needed to test it in a developmental context. The developmental context being where engrailed expression is relevant during sweat gland development, right? So are these enhancers able to function in the cells that express engrailed at this critical placode stage of development in the skin? Now, the way we did this was in mice we first of all took each ECE of these 23 ECEs and we uh, built a little DNA construct which contained the ECE and then a gene that if turned on would produce um, GFP protein, green fluorescent protein. Okay, so if, the, if this element is able to act as an enhancer, then it'll turn on the expression of this green fluorescent protein and it will presumably do it in the cells where this element can function as an enhancer at the time when it can function as such. So we then package these little pieces of DNA into viruses and we use these viruses to infect the skin, the outer layer of the mouse embryo, which gives rise to the skin during embryogenesis, essentially making uh, virally mediated transgenic mice. 
And then we waited. And then two days after the mice were born, we looked, do we see GFP expressing cells within that engrailed one positive domain in the skin? Now, what I'm showing you here is what we were sort of trying to look for. Again, in that cross section where engrailed is expressed in purple. And what we're looking for in our, our brown cells, because we detected our GFP using a colorimetric reaction, which get, makes the cells brown. We're looking for brown cells in that engrailed one positive domain. So using this screen, we were able to identify uh, five engrailed one candidate enhancers uh, located near the engrailed one gene itself. And for the rest of the talk, I'm going to focus on one particular element, which we called ECE18, which is located about 400 kilobases downstream of the gene that encodes engrailed one in both humans and mice. So positionally speaking, it's in the same place in humans as it is in mice relative to the engrailed gene. So these are samples of skin from mice um, in which we expressed either the mouse, the chimpanzee, or the human version of ECE18. Um, and so, and this is just the control, which is um, just the GFP alone without, an, without ECE18. And what you, I hope, can appreciate is in this deepest layer of this, the ectoderm, uh, which is, again, the cells that express engrailed, all versions of ECE18 were able to give us brown cells. So the ECE18 versions are all able to activate gene expression in the cells that we know also express engrailed. Now, this is a qualitative assay. It doesn't actually tell us anything other than where and when the enhancer can function. It doesn't tell us anything about the relative strength or potency of the enhancer. So to do that, we had to do a slightly different type of assay but again, using it's a reporter assay, similar to what we did in the mice. Now, in this case, we're moving to cells in a dish, and these are cultured human or mouse keratinocytes, which are skin cells. Um, in this case, we cloned different versions of ECE18 from various species, across placental mammals, um, and we cloned it upstream, not of GFP, but of a gene that would encode the luciferase enzyme. Now, once uh, we infect our cells with these reporters, if the enhancer is able to function, what it does is it activates the expression of luciferase, and then we can collect basically cell extract and determine how much luciferase was produced downstream of each of the ECE18 versions. And we can do this in a quantitative way using a luminometer. Um, so what I'm showing you data is from um, human cultured keratinocytes as well as mouse cultured keratinocytes. The first thing, um, and again, what we're expecting is the stronger the ECE18 enhancer, the higher the luciferase activity we're going to detect, the more enzyme got made, essentially. Um, so what I hope you can first appreciate is that the um, ECE18 doesn't really appear to be a very strong enhancer outside of simians. The second thing that should be jumping out at you is that the human version of ECE18, whether you're working with human skin cells or whether you're working with mouse skin cells, so independent of species context, the human version of ECE18 is always driving the most expression of luciferase. It's acting as the strongest enhancer in both contexts. But where is the activity coming from. So the original human ECE18 element that we cloned is, is quite long. It's about a thousand base pairs, DNA base pairs long. 
So to figure out where really the activity was coming from, we, we basically cut this big piece into two smaller overlapping fragments, which we called A and B. And we retested them for their relative activity in the same type of luciferase assays. And I'm showing you the results here. So here's CHIMP ECE18 as a reference. You see it's about almost threefold lower in activity than the human element. Um, and what we were able to find is that this fragment A can completely account for the quantitative activity of the full-length element all on its own. So this it's about 600 nucleotides long rather than 1,000, and that really provides all of the activity of the enhancer. But what within this region is actually important? Now, there are 10 human-derived base pair substitutions within, within this fragment. So what are derived nucleotide substitutions are essentially positions, DNA base pairs, which are identical between um, chimps and gorillas, but they are different in human in terms of sequence. Okay? So essentially, humans are different than the ancestral state in uh, great apes. So it turns out that if we mutate each one of these positions in human ECE18 back to the ancestral ape base, it makes little to no difference to the activity of the enhancer. It doesn't change it, and I'm not showing you that data here. In order to bring the activity of the human enhancer down to the level of chimpanzee or gorilla, because we got the same exact result with the gorilla, what you have to do is mutate all 10 of these positions in the human enhancer back to the ancestral ape sequence. So this tells us two very important things. It tells us, first of all, that it really is this fragment A, the 600 nucleotides that is the core enhancer that really provides all of the activity. But it also means that it is human-specific DNA mutations, substitutions, that are required for the gains in the activity that we see in the human enhancer. And it also tells us that it's really the cumulative effects of multiple mutations all within the single regulatory element that are critical for giving us that boost of activity in the human version of the enhancer. Now, all of this basically tells you that human ECE18 can function as an enhancer. And it doesn't tell you that it's actually an enhancer of engrailed. So how do we address that? So the first way we try to address this is in the only human context that's available to us experimentally, and that is cultured human keratinocytes or skin cells in a dish. Now, in each of these cells, in the nuclei of each of these cells, in the DNA, you have the engrailed one gene, and downstream of it, you have the sequence encoding ECE18. So what we did was we used, um, basically infected these cells with a giant repressor complex that uh, we could guide to specific regions of DNA. For example, we could guide it directly to sit on top of this human ECE18 construct, the uh, region of the DNA, and asked what happens to engrailed expression. So essentially, if we drag this complex down, it's a silencing complex. So normally, sorry, I should say, so normally... Human ECE18, if it's an enhancer of engrailed, is able to move around and contact the engrailed locus to affect its expression. Now, if we guide this giant repressor complex, what happens is we basically make this region of the genome inaccessible. So it can no longer contact things like the engrailed locus. Okay? Now, if ECE18 is somehow important for regulating an engrailed um, expression, we should see a reflection of, um, of that in the levels of engrailed now being produced by the gene. 
And so that's exactly what we assessed here. So what you're looking at here is the relative level of engrailed expression from the engrailed one locus in human keratinocytes when we target the repressor complex to ECE18 or when we don't. And it turns out that whenever we target this big repressor complex down to human ECE18, we see the expression of this engrailed one gene drop by about 40%. This now tells us that the normal function of this element in human skin cells is to promote the expression of engrailed. But human skin cells are not a developmental system. They never go on to make sweat glands. In fact, nobody knows how to make sweat glands in a dish. And what we really want to know is, is human ECE18 able to control and upregulate the expression of engrailed in that magical time window when the placodes are forming and acquiring their fate, right? When sweat gland number is being specified in the skin. And for that, we have to move to the only developmental system that's available to us, and that's the mouse. So um, in order to assess the um, developmental potential of human ECE18 um, in this context, we genome engineered um, mice, uh, humanized ECE18 mice. So what we essentially did was we used CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing technology to cut out the ECE18 uh, sequence from the mouse genome and replace it with the human version of ECE18. So what you end up with is mice that have a completely normal genome, except that instead of having mouse sequence at ECE18, they have human sequence, they have the human enhancer. These are humanized ECE18 knock-in mice or KI mice. So the first thing we did was ask, well, what happens to the expression of engrail during that all-important time window when the placodes uh, of sweat glands are forming in the skin of the bottom of the paw? Um, so just to explain this graph to you, what we're looking at here is, again, the expression of engrailed one in the skin. And we're looking in three different classes of mice. Okay, so um, mice, as, as also like humans, inherit a copy of each gene from their mom and, their, and one copy from their dad. Okay, so in this case, these mice, this is a group of mice that inherited two mouse copies of human ECE, uh, sorry, two mouse copies of ECE18. These mice inherited one mouse copy of ECE18 from one parent, and from their other parent, they inherited the humanized version of the enhancer. And these mice carry only the humanized version of the enhancer. And what should come out of all of this is that mice that have the human enhancer express higher levels of engrailed than their wild-type littermates. So now this is consistent with um, human ECE18 being able to function as an enhancer to increase the production of engrailed during exactly the time window that we care about. But can this enhancer, through its regulation of engrailed, affect the number of sweat glands the mouse forms? So to um, address this question, we generated mice uh, in which we sensitized the number of sweat glands the mouse would build in its paw to purely to engrailed levels. Um, and essentially, we did this by giving the mice one defective copy of engrailed that didn't function called basically an engrailed one knockout allele, and then one wild type, one normal copy of the engrailed gene. And we either, and these mice either also, the wild type copy of the engrailed gene was either paired with the normal mouse uh, ECE18 sequence, or in another class of mice, it was paired with the human enhancer instead, the only functional copy of the engrailed gene. Um, and then we looked at how many sweat glands these mice now go on to form as adults 
um, in this medial region of the bottom of their paws, which we call the inner foot pad space. Now, the reason we looked here is because we know from previous studies that we've done in mice that this region is acutely sensitive to engrailed one levels. And so we've already lowered the level of engrailed in these mice because they only have one functional copy of the gene. And this region is really, really sensitive now to engrailed one levels and therefore uh, to uh, how much a sweat gland number will be affected by engrailed. So what we observed when we counted the number of sweat glands in these two different groups of mice was that mice which um, carried the human enhancer had about a 17% increase in the number of sweat glands that they built in their feet. So this tells us that human ECE18 is able to promote the formation of eccrine sweat glands in the skin. And because we sensitized our entire experiment in grilled one, this experiment also tells us that the ability of this human enhancer to promote sweat clamp formation is occurring through its upregulation of engrailed one expression. So now we can build a model, which we have done. Um, about how humans could have evolved more sweat glands relative to our closest primate relatives. So our data suggests that ECE18 evolved to be an enhancer in simians, an enhancer that is active in keratinocytes. Our data also shows that the successive mutation of this element, right, it was mutated at least 10 times during human evolution, produced a much stronger enhancer through a cumulative effect. Now, the stronger enhancer acted to activate expression of engrailed more and more and more, and that higher expression of engrailed in turn acted to induce the formation of more sweat glands in human skin relative to that of our other ape relatives. So in all, we think that we have found at least one developmental and genetic mechanism that underlies the evolution of what is one of the classical signature traits of our species. And with that, I would really like to thank you for your attention. Um, I also really want to give credit to the people who actually carried out all of this work. Um, this was a project spearheaded by a very talented postdoc in my lab, Daniel Aldea, with the help of current and former lab members. Um, none of this would have been possible without Yuji Atsuda, our collaborator um, at Harvard, who carried out um, the lentiviral injections to generate transgenic mice, which is how we performed our screen to identify and grilled one uh, enhancers in the first place. Steve Schaffner, who taught us some of the computational analyses we used, and Rexy for her help in validating um, our humanized knock-in mice. Our funding sources for this project, um, as well as, very importantly, um, the mice, without which we would not have actually been able to, to test the hypotheses So when provide functional evidence to validate them. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.